0: Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. Last week, we dealt with the brutal climax of the civil wars between Sigebert and Chilperic. Struck down by assassins so close to his longed-for victory, Sigebert's death would upend the political situation in the Frankish kingdom. Now, there were two grown kings, potentially one new child king, and a big old power vacuum. Let's see how it goes in episode 18, Aftermath. Gregory starts book 5, the next book in his 10 books of history, with an address directly to his readers. It starts, quote, It gives me no pleasure to write of all the different civil wars which afflicted the Frankish people and their rulers, end quote. Gregory knows that the murder of Sigebert and the constant civil wars must be taking a toll on the reader, and takes this time to lay out his opinions on the matter. And, like most of Gregory's opinions, they are complicated and, sometimes, a little contradictory. Gregory starts his diatribe with a strong condemnation of the Frankish kings. He clearly abhors their family struggles and claims that it was earlier kings' quote, inability to ever agree with each other, end quote, that doomed them to be defeated by their enemies. With the Lombard and Saxon invasions in mind, Gregory is clearly pointing the finger for the violence and chaos in the realm at the disunity between the kings. So, what would he prefer they do? Just hug it out and focus on making their citizens' lives better? Well, no. Gregory is no pacifist. Despite being a bishop of the church, he displays again and again a fairly well-developed taste for conflict and conquest. He wouldn't go himself, but he certainly believes that conquest is the job of kings. To illustrate this, Gregory directly addresses the kings in his time and delivers some scathing comparisons. First, he brings up Rome, great and mighty precursor civilization to them all. He points out how their, quote, civil dissensions, which is a very kind word for the bloody civil wars that dogged Rome, brought the great empire down. But, he claims, they always rose again once the conflict was over. This is obviously a fairly generous reading of Roman history, but it seems clear it is meant to be a lesson for the Frankish kings. Once the war is over, let it go and focus on other things. Stop getting stuck in the cycles of conflict that never end because none of you ever let go of anything. Now the second comparison is the really personal one. Gregory writes, if only you kings had occupied yourselves with wars like those in which your ancestors larded the ground with their sweat, then the other races of the earth, filled with awe at the peace which you imposed, might have been subjected to your power. Just think of all that Clovis achieved." So, not only does Gregory attack them for being less than their ancestors, he brings up Clovis, the man they've all been taught to look up to, He then goes on to deliver a point-by-point breakdown of how they're all failures compared to Clovis. I mean, he's right, but it's gotta hurt a little. Also, note that despite his condemnation of their civil wars, he is encouraging the kings to do more war, just as long as it's with other people. Now... This is probably a good point to discuss how much of Gregory's writings were available during his life. This is a difficult topic because, as with so many other things in this period, we simply do not know the truth. In fact, there is still significant scholarly debate around what books were written when. With this in mind, we do have some evidence of Gregory sharing parts of what would become his ten books of history in letters with his friends. And on top of this, a lot of the books seem to be written as if he expected them to be read by contemporaries. We will later see a strong example of this with Chilperic, who gets fairly subtle or muted criticism from Gregory until he dies. Then, Gregory unleashes a scathing attack on the dead king, Attempting to paint him as one of the worst men who had ever lived. These kinds of details suggest Gregory's work might have been somewhat available and that he worked with the political dangers of what he was writing in mind. So, there is a non-zero chance that these rather personal attacks on the kings that we are now reading might have actually ended up in the hands of one of those kings. Anyway, after Gregory is done fawning over Clovis, he delivers a particularly interesting section that consists, almost entirely, of angry rhetorical questions. And he seems genuinely angry here, perhaps a reflection of the frustration he felt at watching the devastation caused by these greedy kings. The section is as follows. What are you trying to do? You have everything you want. Your homes are full of luxuries. There are vast supplies of wine, grain, and oil in your storehouses. And in your treasuries, the gold and silver are piled high. Only one thing is lacking. You cannot keep peace. And therefore, you do not know the grace of God. Why do you all keep stealing from each other? Why do you always want something which someone else possesses? I beg you to listen to the words of the Apostle. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. Even in simply repeating his words, it's hard to keep the frustration out of my voice. Gregory doesn't actually quote Bible verses all that often, and when he does, it's usually when he's trying to teach you something. Gregory wants more than to express his frustration to the reader here, he really is trying to underline the lesson expressed in that line from Galatians, if you keep fighting, you'll become used to it and never stop. And he's right, though no one would listen. The whole spiel, of which there is plenty more, is a cry of a desperate man who feels frustrated at the state of his world. It's more than just a man who is sick of war. It's a bishop who feels it's his duty to stop this conflict for the good of his flock, but no one will listen to him. It's probably a frustration many bishops of the time felt. Think about Saint Germanus, Bishop of Paris, trying desperately and bluntly to warn Sigebert in the previous episode. If you're a bishop in this period, your job is to prevent conflict and act as a mediator, and overall, at this point in Merovingian history, they're mostly failing at this job. With this in mind, we can see why Gregory's work is so full of moralising and lessons for the reader. He truly believes that he has been trying his best, but seems to believe that he is struggling in his divine duty to help the people of Francia. These books can be seen as something of a second chance for Gregory to get his message heard and hope that future generations might heed his warnings. It was a valiant attempt, though I suspect he would be rather horrified to learn what future generations got up to. Diving into Book 5 itself, things are not going well for Gregory's allies. The first chapter deals with the devastating fall from grace that Brunhild received. Now, I know I've built up Brunhild a lot so far in this series, and I promise some of her badass stuff is coming, but she is still young, relatively new to Frankia, and new to politics in this period. Her move to Paris shows she's still in Sigbert's inner circle, and thus likely wielding some power. But she hasn't yet learned to extend her power out past that of her king. She's still been operating under Sigebert's shadow. And she's going to have to learn how to fend for herself if she's going to survive. Unfortunately, the lessons she's about to receive are cruel and horrifying. It'll ultimately make her a tougher person and better at playing the Merovingian political game. But it's gonna hurt." The moment those knives hit Sigebert's flesh down in Vitry, people scattered in all directions, bringing news of the King's fall with them. Brunhild and her court at Paris were among the first to hear due to Vitry's proximity to the city. The news hit the court like a ton of bricks. Everyone there had bet heavily on Sigebert coming out victorious, It had seemed like a safe bet. All of them, especially the local magnates around Paris who had switched sides, were now in serious danger. Chilperic was not a forgiving man, even by Merovingian standards. From his perspective, he had always been the rightful king, and Paris had always been his rightful seat. Heads were going to roll for this one. Brunhild, according to Gregory, was incapacitated by the news of her husband's death. He records her as being, quote, prostrate with anguish and grief. To be fair to her, Sigebert had been the centre of her world for over eight years. She had been sent here to marry him, that had three children together, and he had been on his way to avenge her sister's death. And we can't say for sure but their marriage seems to have been a relatively happy one. Gregory's bias gets in the way, but we get no hint of struggles in their marriage. Even more importantly, Sigebert never took another wife. We don't even hear about a mistress. This is very unusual for a Merovingian, as we know, so we can assume a couple things about their marriage based off this fact. With Brunhild distraught, The court was functionally leaderless. Panic rolled through the halls of power as each man and woman desperately sought a solution to their predicament, knowing the longer they waited, the angrier Chilperic would be. Gregory doesn't record it, but we can be sure almost as soon as the news arrived, nobles and courtiers would have begun to slink off and seek out Chilperic to beg for forgiveness and claim that they were always loyal, but some nobles had a bit more ambition than that. Power vacuums are dangerous, but they are also moments of great opportunity. As Brunhild was distracted by her grief, one of Sigebert's dukes, Gunderwald, decided to seize the moment, and the prince. As she was distracted, he stole the five-year-old Childebert II from his room, and secretly escaped with him, leaving Brunhild alone with only her daughters. Once free and safe, or at least safer from Chilperic, Duke Gundevold had the young boy crowned king, starting his reign on Christmas Day 575. Gundevold and his consortium of nobles then moved to consolidate their power in the east, where support for Sigebird had been the strongest seeking to rule through the boy king for as long as they possibly could. Now that her son had also been taken from her, Brunhild was left alone to face Chilperic. We don't know why she didn't try to flee. Chilperic doesn't seem to have been in a hurry to reach Paris. She might have had time to escape with her daughters. Perhaps she was still paralysed by grief. Perhaps she realized she had no one to turn to after all, Guntram had been Sigebert's rival, and Gundevald and the nobles around her son would only see her as a threat for influence over the young king. So she sat waiting. The most important nobles had either already left to the approaching king, left with Gundevald, or simply returned to their lands to try and keep their heads down until things calmed a bit. Alone, bereft of support, Brunhild waited in Paris for whatever punishment Chilperic would see fit to give her. As the new year dawned, Chilperic finally arrived. Brunhild had to watch as the man who had murdered her sister and her husband in her mind calmly made his way through the city unopposed. He seized the part of Sigebert's treasury that Brunhild had brought with her to Paris, which was probably a large part of it, then came for Brunhild herself. Rather cruelly, he had her seized, took away her two daughters, then sent her to the city of Rouen to be imprisoned. Left with nothing, stripped of her treasure and her children, Everyone expected her to waste away in the northern city. But she wouldn't. Instead, she's going to show us she's learnt not to rely on anyone else. And she's learnt how to cause some trouble. Chilperic probably assumed Brunhild would never bother him again. No doubt, he assumed she'd either become a useful bargaining chip with her newly crowned son, or he'd just have to have her quietly killed off, just like he had her sister. It didn't really matter to him now, he was busy settling scores. He had sent his man Roquelin to invade the city of Tours and plunder it for its part in the civil war and the death of his son Theudebert. Remember, Theudebert had died fighting the forces of the two dukes, which had partially been taken from the city of Tours. He had also sent his son Merevec to Poitiers to teach them a lesson as well for switching sides in the civil war. But Merevec disobeyed his father and instead went first to Tours, looting part of that city yet again, and then north to Rouen. Merevec, as it turns out, had some plans, but More on that next week. At this point, you might be forgiven for thinking that Chilperic is going to pick up where Sigbert left off and push for his own dominance in the realm, and he was certainly in a position to do so. Guntram was still yet to forcefully intervene outside of his realm in the southeast. The dukes around Childebert II might have been grasping at more power but they were still no match for the undivided attention of a fully-fledged Merovingian king. He held the north, his agents were sweeping up Sigbert's former lands in central Gaul, things were looking good. He was making all the right moves to lay down the foundation for dominance, filling in all the parts that Sigbert had seized in the preceding years. Chilperic had a clear roadmap for dominating the realm, a lack of effective rivals, and some momentum on his side. So why is everything about to start falling apart? We've been discussing the building chaos in the realm over the past few weeks for a reason. It's not going to simply go away. Like all transitions of power, there was too much uncertainty, too much opportunity. Chilperic will fail to unseat Childebert II. He's going to be too busy trying to hold on to what he's already got. This period after the death of Sigebert is really where the instability in the realm goes from something that the powerful kings can exploit for their own gain to something they have to defend from. This is a crucial shift. As Gregory pointed out in the start of this chapter... The Merovingian kings of this time are not the same brutal, hungry conquerors that their ancestors were. And if this Gallo-Roman bishop can see that, that means the rest of the realm can too. Suddenly, people were waking up to the realization that the Merovingian kings weren't as scary as they once were. And if the threat of force and reprisals aren't going to keep people in line... The Merovingian state had little left to fall back on. As we've covered before, there isn't a whole lot of legitimacy to spare. Things are going to get worse before they get better. And it is worth noting, without Sigebert, there was no competent military king left. Chilperic had placed himself in the middle of Merovingian politics, but... That also meant that anyone who wanted a slice of the power pie now only really had one target. Could he hold on to what he'd managed to seize? Well, things are going to get a bit complicated. So, over the next few weeks, instead of following the story as Gregory lays it out, we're going to break up the narrative and follow the journeys of the individuals who are about to make Chilperic's life hell. These will happen on all three levels, the international, the national and the local, and each of them are going to pose unique problems for Chilperic. We'll track these stories one by one, but I'll try and remind you each time that all of these things are actually happening all at once. The unexpected circumstances that surround Sigebert's death are about to push the chaos that has been building into gear as everyone scrambles to snatch at whatever chance they have to undermine Chilperic. The shoe is about to be firmly on the other foot. We'll start next week with the tale of Merovic and Brunhild. See you then.